Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, and I'm joined by Margie O'Mero. Uh, and this is our weekly interview show where we sit down with somebody who's doing great things in the field of uh, polling or research or data. And this week, we are so excited to be joined uh, by Scott Tranter, partner at uh, Republican analytics firm Optimus. Uh, Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, so, Scott, you are fresh off the campaign trail. Um, your firm was the one doing analytics for uh, Marco Rubio's presidential campaign. Tell us a little bit about that experience and what you have learned about the Republican electorate as a result of this adventure over the last year or so. <laughs> the Republican electorate is restless, I guess is the way I would put it. Um it's funny when we started out, uh, you you spend a lot of your time focusing on the first four states in February, Iowa, um, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada. Um, and obviously this election is still going on and we, we were in it through uh, most of the March states. All, all we can do is when you're trying, a lot of people look at Iowa. Iowa is kind of like studying the Super Bowl. Everyone gets to study the Super Bowl. Um, but when you start looking at states like Virginia and a presidential primary uh, electorate or Oklahoma or Arkansas or something like that, there's not a whole lot of um, uh, precedence or data to back it up to say, hey, Virginia is going to have 1.1 million people show up, which is twice as much as almost twice as much who's shown up in 2012 presidential primary. So what I'm getting at here is it was very hard to predict the moving target that is turnout. And then compound with the fact that you have, you know, at times 17 candidates in the field, some very prolific candidates in terms of getting earned media and stirring up, um, you know, intensity from the from the voters. And it, it made it interesting to figure out who comes out. Some points I'd like to make, at least, is from from a standpoint, if you zoom in on Virginia and you zoom in on Florida, Florida had 2.3 million, roughly 2.3 million people turn out in this presidential primary, with which is roughly 800,000 more than showed up in the 12 presidential primary. And obviously, I noted earlier, Virginia was twice as much. Um, basically, new people were showing up in the presidential primary process. I, they weren't by and large, and we'll find out for sure when we get the voter files, it, it is our sense they weren't by and large brand new registered voters. It was more people who hadn't necessarily participated in this process. Um, and so, which is a good thing. You want more people to vote and you want that, um, you know, want, you want them to be part of the process. But generally speaking, as someone who models this quite a bit, you, you always look at past precedents or past performance for future performance. And if you have a lot of people who have never shown up before in a presidential private context showing up now, 
A, there's a lot of predictionists who were wrong and certainly, you know, changes changes the electorate. Well, I remember there was a, at one point there were folks who were trying to make the case, eh, you know, the electorate's not changing that much because new registration isn't up. Uh, and I think I tweeted something like, well, but what about people who are registered but just never show up? And I think you you like tweeted a smiley face at me and we talked about it on the show. I'm like, what did Scott's smiley face mean? We have to we have to decipher the emoji. But can, right. you, can you back up a little bit for us for some of our listeners who are, you know, just dipping their toe into politics and data maybe for the first time. Tell us a little bit about what is big data? Why does everyone seem to have one, have this capability now? How is it useful in campaigns, broadly speaking, the Rubio campaign more specifically? Just give us a little bit more background as to this new-ish trend in campaigns. Sure. And I, we liken to, we liken big data or analytics um, in campaigns as a style of play, no different than say the West coast offense is a style of play in football. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a theme or it's a set of rules in which you go about making decisions and decisions in the campaign world are, where does my candidate go? How much do I spend on television? How much do I spend on digital? Do I send a mail piece to this person? Do I do my field office over here? And a whole host of other questions that come along when you have you know, a eight and nine figure political campaign for a particular office. And so, you know, in the past, before the advent of, you know, large voter databases with, you know, predictive models and things like that, um, it was largely based on experience. And so that's kind of what we've been seeing over the last 10 to 12 years is data has become very prevalent. Um, both the tools in which to analyze data, as well as the data on these specific folks. So instead of sitting at a table and say, you know what, this mail piece that we sat, that we used four years ago, I think this is what worked. Um, now we have the data from that mail piece. We have the outcome from that mail piece. And now we are sitting four years in the future and we can actually say whether or not that worked or not. And that can inform whether or not we do that again or we do something in the future. And that's only made possible because we've learned how to keep track of what's going on, you know, at a voter file level. Um, as well as, you know, introducing tools and techniques that allow us to monitor it. It's kind of like this. I'm a big baseball fan. If we would not have sabermetrics unless my grandfather sat at every single baseball game and filled out his box score for every game and decided to fill it in. We've just, you know, we've started political sabermetrics probably in the last 10 or 15 years. So can, tell us a little bit about how that works. So when you say um, we figure out what, you know, how it, how a male piece worked because we tracked it, can you tell us a little bit about how, what that means in practice? Sure. So mail pieces or any sort of contact, what, you know, what uh, our firm has kind of played off of is how do they do it in medicine, right? So medicine solved this problem um, many years ago where they said, look, I'm not sure if it's the honey, if it's the salve or it's the, the rain man dance in the corner that solved my, you know, that fixed my flu. I did all of them and my flu is no longer there. So maybe if I do all three of them again, maybe I will get the same result. Um, and so what they did is they came up with a process, a randomized control group study where you scientifically prove that, hey, it wasn't the it wasn't the shaman in the corner dancing. It was actually the, the honey I applied to the wound or whatever it is, the salve. And so we apply that in campaigns and it's mail is an easy one to explain when we get into digital and TV. It's a little bit more esoteric, but mail is easy, right? If I have 100,000 people who I think I want to persuade instead of mailing all 100,000 people at the cost of 30 to $50,000, I'm going to randomly select out, say, 10,000. Um, and I'm going to send them a mail piece and then uh, con uh, uh, concurrently I'm going to select out 10,000 in a treatment group and they're going to get nothing. Um, you know, the term would be placebo. They're just not going to get anything. And then we're going to send a mail piece to one group 
not send the mail piece to the other group, and then we're going to survey back into the group. And there's many different ways to survey back into it. The most common way is phones, and I'm going to see if there's any effect uh, on the opinion of my candidate. There's two things you can measure in this this uh, this structure. You can measure opinion. Do I think something differently about this person? Or you can measure turnout. The problem with measuring turnout is, is there's only one feedback me- mechanism for turnout. That's I can send you the piece of mail, and I can send another, and I cannot send the group uh, the piece of mail to another group. But I have to wait till election day to figure out which one worked. Um, and so that those are the types of techniques you do inside the campaign during it. Or you set up, you know, the, the turnout ones you set up way ahead of time and, and so that, you know, no one wants to test whether a mail piece will turn someone out the week before the Iowa caucus. Like, you don't want to guess for that. That's game time. <laughs> you, you, you do that. You do that years in advance. So you understand that answer ahead of time. That being said, the persuasion testing you do do in cycle. You do do that stuff, you know, in the middle of a campaign because the, the electorate, as we talked about, is uh, highly volatile. Now, how has this world of field experiments, randomized control trials changed since you guys got into this? Because I know you've been doing this for a while. I remember seeing a presentation from you all a couple of years ago that was like the first time my eyes were ever opened to this wonderful <laughs> new way you could test ads besides, you know, me sitting in a room with 10 focus group respondents and them telling me, I don't know if I liked the lady in that first ad. I don't know if I liked her. Margie and I talk all the time on the show about people's reactions to women in ads, but nonetheless. When I see an ad, I vote for the other person. I don't like negative ads. They make me mad. Um, no, but, you know, with, when it comes to all sorts of, of campaign, you know, voter contact, uh, have you seen the world of field experiments in campaigns change at all since? I mean, even though it's a newer field? Yeah. No, there's there's two ways we've seen it change. One is we've seen acceptance. Uh, I'll never forget. And I, I won't I won't name the specific person, but we sat in a meeting um, with a, uh, a decision maker, so to speak. And they literally said, I don't believe this. There's no way this is accurate. Um, there's no way you can tell me whether or not my TV ad or my mail piece is going to work or not. And I believe the response was something to the effect of, well, you take medicine every day. And he said, yes, I do. And I was like, well, how do you know that works? And he's like, well, science. And, I, and we explained to him that, well, the same scientific process that determined that that pill you're taking in the morning is not going to kill you and it's actually going to affect your health is how we, we choose to do this. And so we've seen we, – we have no longer had these meetings where they're like, this is voodoo magic, your math is bullshit, uh, <laughs> and that kind of thing. And now it's gone to more acceptance. What has come along with that is how complicated these things are constructed. Right, The mail test one is easy. You have to construct a balanced group. And balance, we won't go into that, but statistically balanced group, because I don't want to have too many old people or too many young people or too many people who vote or too many people don't vote. Power of randomization is very powerful. Um, so you have to set it up correctly, and then you have to, to, to survey it, and then you do you know the appropriate statistical test to understand whether it's significant. That is, I'm not going to say that stats 101, but that is within the grasp of many people with you know a high school level of uh, statistical uh, education. Um, it gets way more complicated than that when you start doing things like blocking or you start grouping or you start getting into things like, well, I can't deliver a TV ad, you know, like I deliver a mail piece. So it's really hard to have a quote unquote clean control group and a clean treatment group. There are, you know, relatively complicated, uh, mathematical, I should say, uh, test setups or treatment frameworks that you can do to kind of solve those things. And that's where it gets a little bit more complicated and you need that buy-in, right? If you're going to go to someone and say, I'm going to go, I'm going to go spend, X amount of dollars to spend, you know, hundred thousand dollars to test your TV ad. And I'm going to have to, you know, put it out there a couple of different times and some small scale, um, tests before you go spend $2 million on it. 
you had to convince the guy at the outset that what you were doing was not voodoo magic, right? So th- those these types of complicated things, at least for Republicans, are are uh, coming online in the 14 and 16 cycle, whereas they were uh, looked upon um, not necessarily favorably in the the 10 and 12 cycle. Well, so a- you know, after the 2012 cycle, I mean, there was a lot of kind of hand wringing about, oh, the right is so behind on data and analytics, and then by 2014, you know, the the the, con- the, wiz- the conventional wisdom was changing a little bit. You know, you had the RNC saying, no, we've merged digital and data. Um, and now they've got this cool shop in our basement that looks like something out of Silicon Valley. And, hey, you know, we're, we're getting better at this. And, you know, you'll always see the articles about, you know, I360 is doing X, which is the um, which is a sort of a conservative data vendor. And then you've got the, the Data Trust, which is a Republican data vendor that had been previously affiliated with the RNC and well is the is the ecosystem on the right getting better and and I don't I never quite know what to answer to that question about has the right caught up to the left on a lot of this data and analytics stuff are we still behind are things improving i mean what's your sense of of how things stand in terms of the right's acceptance of and embrace of data and analytics vis-a-vis what's going on on the left. Gosh, you know, that is, that is a fan favorite question. What I would say is <laughs> I think using some data to at least prove the point, and then we can get into more of the gut opinion. I, I remember sitting in a room in the RNC, it must've been like 2010. And I was sitting with um, Alex Lundry, who, you know, is over at Target Point and Deep Root and Bill He's Schell. a listener of the show. Friend, friend yeah. of the show. Yeah. Alex, Lundry, Alex Lundry is a uh, tip of the hat to him because, it, you know, a lot of his work made a lot of our work possible going forward. But long story short, people like him and Bill Skelly um, and Jesse Campbell and a few other people are sitting in a room and we're like, man, if everyone in this room got knocked out by a plane, they're probably there's there's probably only five or six other real Republican operatives who can open up a voter file. <laughs> um, yeah. That's a pretty low bar. <laughs> we say that funnily, but like there are so many people. I'll never forget one of the first things I got started in data is they thought I was a smart person because I understood like they kept opening up a Connecticut voter file and they didn't understand why there was only a million people in it. And I'm like, well, because you're opening up an Excel and I showed them the magic of um, MySQL. But like that, <laughs> those types of that type of knowledge was not necessarily prevalent pre 2012. And I, I'm being being a little bit sarcastic, but not a lot. And so now we look at today and you mentioned all these different, you know, uh, I guess, analytics ecosystems firms, whether you're data trust or I360 or your more consultancies like, say, us or Deep Root or Target Point. Now there are multiple people who can open up voter files there. And, and that's like the lowest form of analysis. Right. Like, can I at least look at what I'm doing? And we're, we're, we're progressing into that. I think the funny thing is the joke was is I, I Brian and I worked on Brown. And in 2012, Scott, Senator Scott Brown is running for Senate in uh, in Massachusetts. And we were we were they didn't call us that then, but we were essentially the data science team. And there was four of us on the team working for the one senator um, in Massachusetts. And I remember going and seeing Alex Lundry when he was at Romney across town. I don't remember exactly how many people he had, but it wasn't much bigger than the, the, as many people at, as we had. And he was trying to win an entire you know, he's trying to win a bunch of battleground states. And we just had the state of Massachusetts. And part of the reason is, is there's not there at the time. There wasn't that many people who could fill these roles of, you know, data infrastructure, data analysis, TV targeting, modeling, testing, all that kind of stuff. And now we have a lot of those people. Now, to the flip side, or I guess the, I guess a little more gut, you, you have to get buy-in, right? Just like a style of play, I may, I may convince you that the West Coast offense, um, or I know uh, Kristen's favorite player, Tebow, is the best person to run my wildcat offense. <laughs> you to run the wildcat offense, I don't care how many people you have on your team who can run the wildcat offense. So it doesn't, it, 
I can't run the Wildcat offense, right? Is that what you said? (laughs) And as we talked about on the show, Tim Tebow cannot run for president yet. I don't know what that is. If you need that on a campaign, I'm not your person. Right. But, but, and that's kind of the point. You can have all these tools, you can have all these really smart people, but at the end of the day, this is about informing decision makers and decision makers have to say, yes, I'm going to trust the analysis that came out of this to inform my decision on X. Yeah, this is... I, I had a chance to talk to Jesse when I was writing the selfie vote and when I was interviewing him, he was saying, you know, that that was the the culture is the bigger problem that on the right, right. you know, we we now have people that can open voter files. And frankly, you know, it's yeah. not that the, the left has like better computers. I mean, I, frankly, if, if by the way, folks, if you ever Google Optimus and you read any piece about them, like you will read all of these great stories about how their offices are just incredibly cool and they have all of their servers in this big cage. And That's do you guys cool. have a nacho cheese machine? Is that something that I read? Yes, we have a nacho cheese machine, a yes. keg, and a soda fountain. Uh, we basically <laughs> I'm lagging built- behind. I've got like a fridge with LaCroix. I'm like, who wants some sparkling water? <laughs> I'm pretty sure we have a Keurig. I bring, in the- sometimes I bring cookies <laughs> in, the kitchen. in, but we got to step up our nacho cheese game over at Echelon. We do have a piano um, um, So uh, here at Purple. Um, so, But here's my question, right? So lots of folks want to have – data scientists on their team now. Now that hurdle, I think, has mostly been overcome. There are a lot of campaigns who say, okay, I need one of those. I'm not sure what it is or what they do, but I need one. Now, is that is that necessary but not sufficient? Can you win a campaign that has other, you know, that maybe seems tied or behind or struggling? Can you outmaneuver your opponent using targeting or is it something that's effective on the margins? I mean, what do you make of that? Um, you know what? I, I, I think we firmly believe, at least in this firm, I think it's the general thing is like, you're not going to long divide your way to victory, right? Like not what we do is not the game changer. You still have to have a superior message and a superior candidate. And there isn't enough math or science to, to, uh, you know, change that. Um, and so, yes, the answer is it's on the margins. but you know what? A lot of these really important things are on the margins. Um, or, they are they are a cumulative sense of you know what this is this is worth one point here this is worth half a point there or this is worth a fifty thousand dollar savings here this is twenty thousand here or I'm saving you know the candidate gets another night at home all these all these things that you do to find these efficiencies or for lack of a better term shortcuts through analytics um, you know adds up over time to give you you know that 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 leading edge so to speak. Well so I've I've got to ask now, you know, a 2016 question. And and this is the the big broad uh, the math question that is facing Republicans this time around, which is, uh, you know, the, how can Republicans win a general election? You know, there's this theory. You know, it seemed that 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 Marco Rubio's theory was that you know we need to expand who we appeal to, including younger voters, Hispanic voters. Um, you've got someone like Ted Cruz, whose theory seems to be we will expand our voter pool by by really like juicing turnout from our base by getting getting a whole bunch of conservatives who don't vote to vote. Um, right. and, and I've always been skeptical that they, there is this group of voters who are super, super ideologically conservative and just have been sitting out elections because like Mitt Romney was insufficiently conservative. Um, but but then you have this third argument now, which is the Donald Trump working class whites argument that there is this other pool of voters who are not young, not Latino, not any of the type of people I always talk about. 
about, but who are these infrequent voters who are white working class and that there are enough of them to reshape the electorate in in Trump's image uh, and to, to help him win. But I, I feel like I, – I know I feel like that's dangerous math. Math shouldn't be about a feeling. But I mean I, I have not seen compelling evidence to suggest that the Trump theory of how you reshape the electorate is – sufficient. What's your take on this? I mean, do you think are there enough voters out there that if you're trying to reshape the electorate, you can do it in the way that Trump intends to in a general? Um, you know what? It's it's actually it's I, I can't wait to get, say, a full Virginia or a full Florida yeah. file back. But I think the evidence that we've seen thus far and we can we can I certainly stand to be corrected here in the next couple months. But take Florida, for example, just in the people who requested A.B. ballots and then then more importantly, those who returned it. And um, it's a little it's a little point of contention among those who are nerds about voter files. So I without tipping my hand to where I think roughly 20 percent of those people who returned voter file or returned ballots in Florida um, had only vote in general elections. So in that sense, I can definitively say – And AB being absentee? Absentee ballots. And so what I can say is for that instance, um, you know, Donald – I don't know who they – I have some opinions, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait until I get the full voter file. In that instance, this, this field of candidates was able to get people who normally vote in general elections – to vote in a presidential primary. So in that sense, this field of Republican candidates has been able to change the turnout profile in Republican elections. Now, the devil's always in the details. I just told you that roughly one-fifth of them, you know, it's they vote, but they don't vote in primaries. So we've already factored them in. They've already been priced into the model, so to speak, for the general election. In other words, yeah, I, I didn't think they were going to vote in the primary, but they're going to vote in the general. And so that's where I think the theory behind this slate of candidates, and I think there's a lot of strong evidence that you know Donald Trump is leading some of this stuff um, in terms of being able to get some of these people who normally turn out, turn out. I think that's happening, but I think these people were going to turn out and probably vote Republican anyway. Now, granted, I am aware of all the theories, and I think um, you know WPA has a pretty good study out about how you know, in 12, there was a whole slate of evangelicals who, who stayed out and Republicans and all those types of things. And again, the devil's in the details and all of those. You could probably have a whole podcast on that. Um, but generally speaking, I, I want to wait till see the voter file. I think it's pure numbers. You know, the definitive statement I will say is pure numbers. There are more registered Democrats than there are registered Republicans. Um, and so from that pure macro sense, our job is we need to convince more people. We need to persuade more people, whereas the Democrats have to turn them out. And so, you know, and that's why I believed in, you know, the Rubio strategy. We have to expand the electorate, not necessarily, you know, consolidate what we have. Well, Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I have loved having you on the show. We talk about the, the work you guys are doing uh, frequently whenever there's something new and fun to discuss. Uh, and so I've loved having you. Thank you so much this for joining was, us. This was great. And how can people find you, Scott, and learn more about you, follow you on Twitter, learn more about your firm? Um, so, yeah, our firm is on Twitter at optimist.com. That's zero, not the actual number or the letters. Um, o. I know it's weird. It's quite hard to find us. And then I'm on Twitter as well, S Tranter, S T R N T E R. And then Brian Stoby, um, one of our other partners, is on Twitter as well. Brian J Stoby. Just Google us. We're around. We we are young and probably put too many opinions on the internet, so you can find us. Uh, uh, thank you very much for having us, and uh, look forward to continue listening. Yeah. Thanks. All right. Thanks, guys. <laughs> 